Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from The Provincial American and Other Papers by Meredith Nicholson, published in 1913. This book is the perfect companion to help you drift off to sleep. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. I'd like to send a thank you to all the patrons and sponsors who continue to support the show, either on Anchor or Patreon. Whether it's $1 or $5, your monthly contribution allows me to bring out more episodes for those who need them, and it is truly appreciated. If you would like to sponsor the show, please visit boytosleep.com. Lots of people listen to this podcast because they find it useful when falling asleep. If you find the podcast beneficial, I have a favour to ask. Please share the podcast with a friend who may also need a good night's rest. If you would like, you can say hello at boytosleep.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, at Boy to Sleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The Provincial American and Other Papers I am a Provincial American. My forebears were farmers or country town folk. They followed the long trail over the mountains out of Virginia and North Carolina, with brief sojourns in western Pennsylvania and Kentucky. My parents were born, the one in Kentucky, the other in Indiana, within two and four hours of the spot where I pen these reflections. And I had voted before I saw the sea or any eastern city. In attempting to illustrate the provincial point of view out of my own experiences, I am moved by no wish to celebrate either the Hoosier Commonwealth, which has not lacked nobler advertisement, or myself, but by the hope that I may cheer many who, flung by fate upon the world's byways, shuffle and shrink under the reproach of their metropolitan brethren. Mr. George Aid has said, speaking of our freshwater colleges, that Purdue University, his own alma mater, offers everything that Harvard provides except the sound of ah, as in father. I have been told that I speak our lingua rustica, only slightly corrupted by urban contacts. Anywhere east of Buffalo, 
I should be known as a Westerner. I could not disguise myself if I would. I find that I am most comfortable in a town whose population and does not exceed a fifth of a million, a place in which men may relinquish their seats in the streetcar to women without having their motives questioned, and where one calls the stamp clerk at the post office by his first name. Across a hill slope that knew my childhood, a bugle's grieving melody used to float often through the summer twilight. A highway lay hidden in the little vale below, and beyond it the unknown musician was quite concealed and was never visible to the world I knew. Those trumpetings have lingered always in my memory and colour my recollections of all that was near and dear in those days. Men who had left camp and field for the soberer routine of civil life were not yet fully domesticated. My bugler was merely solacing himself for lost joys by recurring to the vocabulary of the trumpet. I am confident that he enjoyed himself, and I am equally sure that his trumpetings peopled the dusk for me with great captains and mighty armies. No American boy, born during or immediately after the Civil War, can have escaped in those years the vivid impressions derived from the sight and speech of men who had fought its battles or women who had known its terror and grief. Chief among my playthings on that peaceful hillside was the sword my father had borne at Shiloh and onto the sea, and I remember, too, his uniform coat and sash and epaulets, and the tattered guidon of his battery, that, falling to my lot as toys, yet imparted to my childish consciousness a sense of what war had been. The young imagination was kindled in those days by many and great names, Lincoln, Grant and Sherman were among the first lispings of northern children of my generation. And in the little town where I was born, lived men who had spoken with them face to face. I did not know until I sought them later for myself. The fairy tales that are every child's birthright, and I imagine that children of my generation heard less of and more of the men and incidents of contemporaneous history. Great spirits still on earth were sojourning, I saw several times in his last years the iron-willed Hoosier War Governor, Oliver P. Morton. By the time I was ten, a broader field of observation opening through my parents' removal to the state capital, I had myself beheld Grant and Sherman, and every day I passed in the street men who had been partners with them in the great heroic, sad, 
splendid struggle. These things I set down as a background for the observations that follow, less as text than as point of departure. Yet I believe that bugler sounding charge and retreat and taps in the dusk, and those trappings of war beneath whose weight I strutted upon, that hillside, did much toward establishing in me a certain habit of mind. From that hillside I have since ineluctably viewed my country and my countrymen and the larger world. Emerson records Thoreau's belief that the flora of Massachusetts embraced almost all of the important plants of America. Most of the oaks, most of the willows, the best pines, the ash, the maple, the beech, the nuts. He returned Kane's Arctic voyage to a friend of whom he had borrowed with the remark that most of the phenomena noted might be observed in Concord. The complacency of the provincial mind is due less, I believe, to stupidity and ignorance than to the fact that every American county is in a sense complete, a political and social unit in which the sovereign rights of a free people are expressed by the courthouse and town hall. Spiritual freedom by the village church spire and hope and aspiration in the schoolhouse. Every reader of American fiction, particularly in the realm of the short story, must have observed the great variety of quaint and racy characters disclosed. These are the dramatist passants of the great American novel which someone has said is being written in installments. Writers of fiction here, constantly of characters who would be well worth their study. In reading two recent novels that penetrate to the heart of provincial life, Mr. White's A Certain Rich Man and Mrs. Watts, Nathan Burke. I felt that the characters depicted might, with unimportant exceptions, have been found almost anywhere in those American states that shared the common history of Kansas and Ohio. Mr. Winston Churchill, in his admirable novels of New England, has shown how closely the purely local is allied to the universal. When David Haram appeared, characters similar to the hero of that novel were reported in every part of the country. I rarely visit a town that has not its cracker-barrel philosopher or a poet who would shine but for all the callous heart of the magazine editor or an artist of supreme, though unrecognized talent, or a forensic orator of wonderful powers, or a mechanical genius whose inventions are bound to revolutionize the industrial world. In Maine, in the back room of a shop whose windows looked down upon a tidal river, 
I have listened to tariff discussions in the dialect of Hosea Biglow, and a few weeks later have heard farmers along the unsalt Wabash debating the same questions from a point of view that revealed no mastered ships or pinewoods, with a new sense of the fine tolerance and sanity and reasonableness of our American people. Mr. James Whitcomb Riley, one of our shrewdest students of provincial character, introduced me one day to a friend of his in a village near Indianapolis who bore a striking resemblance to Abraham Lincoln and who had something of Lincoln's gift for humorous narration. This man kept a country store and his attitude toward his customers and trade in general was delicious in its drollery. Men said to be like Lincoln have not been rare in the Mississippi Valley and politicians have been known to encourage belief in the resemblance. Colonel Higginson once said that in the Cambridge of his youth, any member of the Harvard faculty could answer any question within the range of human knowledge. Whereas in these days of specialization, some man can answer the question, but it may take a week's investigation to find him. In the days when the bugle still mourned across the vale, Lou Wallace was a citizen of my native town of Crawfordsville. There he had amused himself in the years immediately before the civil conflict in drilling a company of Algerian Zouaves known as the Montgomery Guards, of which my father was a member and this was the nucleus of the 11th Indiana Regiment, which Wallace commanded in the early months of the war. It is not, however, of Wallace's military services that I wish to speak now, nor of his writings, but of the man himself, as I knew him later at the Capitol, at a time when, in the neighborhood of the Federal Building at Indianapolis, any boy might satisfy his longing for heroes with a sight of many of our Hoosier Olympians. He was of medium height, erect, dark to swarthiness, with finely chiselled features and keen black eyes, with manners the most courtly and a voice unusually musical and haunting. His appearance, his taste, his manner were strikingly oriental. He had a strong theatric instinct and his life was filled with drama, with melodrama even. His curiosity led him into the study of many subjects, most of them remote from the affairs of his day. He was both dreamer and man of action. He could be idler than the idlest flowers, yet his occupations were many and various. He was an aristocrat and a democrat. He was wise and temperate, whimsical and injudicious with a breath. As a youth, he had seen visions, 
and as an old man he dreamed dreams. The mysticism in him was deep planted, and he was always a little aloof, a man apart. His capacity for detachment was like that of Sir Richard Burton, who at a great company, given his honour, was found alone poring over a puzzling Arabic manuscript in an obscure corner of his house. Wallace, like Burton, would have reached Mecca if chance had led him to that adventure. Wallace dabbled in politics without ever being a politician, and I might add that he practiced law without ever being, by any high standard, a lawyer. He once spoke of the law as that most detestable of human occupations. First and last, he tried his hand at all the arts. He painted a little. He moulded a little in clay. He knew something of music and played the violin. He made three essays in romance. As boy and man, he went soldiering. He was a civil governor and later a minister to Turkey. In view of his sympathetic interest in Eastern life and character, nothing could have been more appropriate than his appointment to Constantinople. The Sultan Abdul Hamid, harassed and anxious, used to send for him at odd hours of the night to come and talk to him and offered him, on his retirement, a number of positions in the Turkish government. With all this rich experience of the larger world, he remained the simplest of natures. He was as interested in the new fishing tackle as in a new book, and carried both to his houseboat on the Kankakee, where at odd moments he retouched a manuscript for the press or discussed politics with the natives. He was a man who could talk of the Song of Roland as zestfully as though it had just been reported from the telegraph office. I frankly confess that I never met him without a thrill, even in his last years, and when the ardour of my youthful hero worship may be said to have passed. He was an exotic, our Hoosier Arab, our storyteller of the bazaars. When I saw him in his last illness, it was as though I looked upon a grey sheik about to fare forth, unawed toward unmapped oases. No lesson of the Civil War was more striking than that taught by the swift transitions of our citizen soldiery from civil to military life, and back again. This impressed me as a boy, and I used to wonder, as I passed my heroes on their peaceful errands in the street, why they had put down the sword, when there must still be work somewhere for fighting men to do. The judge of the federal court at this time was Walter Q. Gresham, breveted brigadier general, 
who was destined later to adorn the cabinets of presidents of two political parties. He was cordial and magnetic. His were the handsomest and friendliest of brown eyes, and a noble gravity spoke in them. Among the lawyers who practised before him were Benjamin Harrison and Thomas A. Hendricks, who became respectively presidents and vice-presidents. Those Hoosiers who admired Gresham ardently were often less devotedly attached to Harrison, who lacked Gresham's warmth and charm. General Harrison was akin to the Covenanters who bore both Bible and sword into battle. His eminence in the law was due to his deep learning in its history and philosophy. Short of stature and without grace of person, with a voice pitched rather high, he was a remarkably interesting and persuasive speaker. If I may so put it, his political speeches were addressed as to a trial judge rather than to a jury, his appeal being to reason and not to passion or prejudice. He could, in rapid flights of campaigning, speak to many audiences in a day without repeating himself. He was measured and urbane. His discourses abounded in apt illustrations. He was never dull. He never stooped to pietistic claptrap or chanted the jaunty chauvinism that has so often caused the Hoosier stars to blink. Among the democratic leaders of that period, Hendricks was one of the blessed and a man of many attractive qualities. His dignity was always impressive and his appearance suggested the statesman of an earlier time. It is one of immortality's harsh ironies that a man who was a gentleman and who stood moreover pretty squarely for the policies that it pleased him to defend should be published to the world in a bronze effigy in his own city as a bandy-legged and tottering tramp in a frock coat that was never on sea or land. Joseph E. MacDonald, a senator in Congress, was held in affectionate regard by a wide constituency. He was an independent and vigorous character who never lost a certain raciness and tang. On my first timid venture into the fabled East, I rode with him in a day coach from Washington to New York on a slow train. At some point, he saw a peddler of fried oysters on a station platform, alighted to make a purchase, and ate his luncheon quite democratically from the paper parcel in his car seat. He convoyed me across the ferry, asked where I expected to stop, and explained that he did not care for the European plan himself. He liked, he said, to have a full swing at a bill of fare. 
I used to often look upon the towering form of Daniel W. Voorhees, whom Sol Grove, an Indiana journalist with a gift for translating Macaulay into Hoosieries, had named the tall sycamore of the Wabash. In a crowded hotel lobby, I can still see him, cloaked and silk-hatted, the centre of the throng, and my strict upbringing in the antagonistic political faith did not diminish my admiration for his eloquence. Such were some of the characters who came and went in the streets of our provincial capital in those days. In discussions under captions similar to mine, it is often maintained that railways, telegraphs, telephones and newspapers are so knitting us together that soon we shall all be keyed to a metropolitan pitch. The proof unobduced in support of this is the most trivial, but it strikes me is a wholly undesirable that we should all be ironed out and conventionalised. In the matter of dress, for example, the women of our town used to take their fashions from Godies and Petersons via Cincinnati, but now that we are only 18 hours from New York, with a well-travelled path from the Wabash to Paris, my counsellors among the elders declare that the tone of our society, if I may use so perilous a word, has changed little from our good old black alpaca days. The hobble skirt receives prompt consideration in the main street of any town and is viewed with frank curiosity, but it is only a one day's wonder. A lively runaway or the barbaric yawp of the street fakir may dethrone it at any time. New York and Boston tailors solicit custom among us semi-annually, but nothing is so stubborn as our provincial distrust of fine raiment. I look with awe in my boyhood upon a pair of mammoth blue jean trousers that were flung high from a flagstaff in the centre of Indianapolis in derision of the Democratic candidate for governor, James D. Williams, who was addicted to the wearing of jeans. The Democrats sagaciously accepted the challenge, made honest blue jeans the battle cry, and defeated Benjamin Harrison, the kid-glove candidate of the Republicans. Harmless demagoguery this, or bad judgment on the part of the Republicans. And yet I dare say that if the sartorial issue should again become acute in our politics, the banner of bifurcated genes would triumph now as then. A Hoosier statesman who today occupies high office once explained to me his refusal of sugar for his coffee by remarking that he didn't like to waste sugar that way. He wanted to keep it for his lettuce. I do not urge sugared lettuce as symbolising our higher provincialism, 
but mayonnaise may be poison to men who are nevertheless competent to construe and administer law. It is much more significant that we are all thinking about the same things at the same time than that Farnham Street, Omaha and Fifth Avenue, New York should vibrate to the same shade of necktie. The distribution of periodicals is so managed that California and Maine cut the leaves of their magazines on the same day. Rural free delivery has hitched the farmer's wagon to the telegraph office, and you can't buy his wife's butter now until he has scanned the produce market in his newspaper. This immediacy of contact does not alter the provincial point of view. New York and Texas, Oregon and Florida, will continue to see things at different angles. And it is for the good of us all that this is so. We have no national, political, social or intellectual centre. This is no season in New York, as is London during which all persons distinguished in any of these particulars meet on common ground. Washington is our nearest approach to such a meeting place, but it offers only short vistas. We of the country visit Boston for the symphony, or New York for the opera, or Washington to view the government machine at work but nowhere do interesting people representative of our 90 millions ever assemble under one roof. All our capitals are, as Lowell put it, fractional, and we shall hardly see what's at centre while our country is so nearly a continent. Nothing in our political system could be wiser than our dispersion into provinces sweep from the map the lines that divide the states, and we should huddle like sheep suddenly deprived of the protection of known walls, and flung upon the open prairie. State lines and local pride are in themselves a pledge of stability. The elasticity of our system makes possible a variety of governmental experiments, by which the whole country profits. We should all rejoice that the parochial mind is so open, so eager, so earnest, so tolerant. Even the most buck-ramed conservative on the eastern coastline, scornful of the political follies of our far-lying provinces, must view with some interest the dallyings of Oregon with a referendum and of Des Moines with commission system. If Milwaukee wishes to try socialism, the rest of us need not complain. Democracy will cease to be democracy when all of its problems are solved and everybody votes the same ticket. States that produce the most cranks are prodigal of the corn that pays the dividends on the railroads the cranks despise. Indiana's amiable feeling toward New York is not altered by her sister's rejection or acceptance of the direct primary, 
a benevolent device of noblest intention, under which not long ago in my own commonwealth, my fellow citizens expressed their distrust of me with unmistakable emphasis. It is no great matter, but in open convention also I have perished by the sword. Nothing can thwart the chastening hands of a righteous people. All passes, humour alone is the touchstone of democracy. I search the newspapers daily for tidings of Kansas, and in the ways of Oklahoma I find delight. The Emporia Gazette is quite as patriotic as the Springfield Republican or the New York Post, and to my own taste far less depressing. I subscribed for a year to the Charleston News and Courier, and was saddened by the tameness of its sentiments. For I remember, it must have been in 1883, the shrinking horror with which I saw daily in the Indiana Republican organ, a quotation from Wade Hampton to the effect that these are the same principles for which Lee and Jackson fought four years on Virginia's soil. Most of us are entertained when Colonel Watterson rises to speak for Kentucky and invokes the star-eyed goddess. When we call the roll of the states, if Malvolio answer for any, let us suffer him in patience and rejoice in his yellow stockings. God give them wisdom that have it, and those that are fools, let them use their talents. Every community has its dissenters, Protestants, kickers, cranks, the more the merrier. My town has not lacked impressive examples, and I early formed a high resolve to strive for membership in their execrated company. George W. Julian, one of the most noble of Hoosiers, who had been the free soil candidate for vice president in 1852, a delegate to the first Republican convention, five times a member of Congress, a supporter of Greeley's candidacy, and a Democrat in the consulship of Cleveland, was a familiar figure in our streets. In 1884, I was dusting law books in an office, where Mugwampri flourished and where the inquiries to the tariff Matthew Arnold's theological opinions, and the writings of Darwin, Spencer, and Huxley were discussed at intervals in the day's business. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. In the meantime... I'll be working on bringing another episode out just for you. Good night.